Good evening. Good evening. Welcome to Wednesday Evening Chapel. It is the last chapel service of the winter term 2010-2011. Everyone in favor of the winter term being over, say aye. Aye. <clears throat> I thought we'd get a unanimous vote with that one. Again, the uh, worship this evening is going to be led by the Nazarene Bible College Choir and Praise Band, so would you thank them in advance one more time? preacher of the evening is one of my favorite preachers, and the text is one of my favorite texts. So I'm anticipating that we will hear from the Lord in significant ways, primarily because he's already been speaking to us before we got here. Amen? Amen. Stand and let's uh, say our phrase one more time. Hear my Lord. Restore me. Here am I, Lord. Restore me. And now let's pray it. Here we are, Lord. Restore us. Amen. What's everybody doing tonight? Now, the song we're going to sing is called, uh, it's not called Come Now is the Time to Sing or Come Now is the Time to Stand at the, stare at the board in the front. It's a Come Now is the Time to Worship. So I'd ask that all of us just worship, you know, whether you worship at the top of your lungs, whether you worship kind of mumbling quietly, or whether you like to, you know, bounce a little bit or clap your hands. I just ask that you worship and not worship just, not just to have the words come off our lips, but to come out of our hearts, Amen. that our hearts and minds will be focused on Christ as we go through these songs. Drummer. You guys ready to worship? All right. Well, come on then. Now's the time to worship. <laughs> Remain standing for the reading of the word. I'm going to change my order a bit. You may sit down. <laughs> Anything to throw you off. I want to take a moment uh, before we start just to have us acknowledge uh, this, I believe, happens to be the last chapel in which our chaplain is officially chaplain for this um, function. And I want us to thank him for the incredible amount of work that he has done in organizing and putting together and leading us in worship uh, all of this time. We're very grateful. Uh, he's going to be moving to another position, as you know, but I want to thank him for all the work he's done. Despite numerous requests, we will not be returning to the impurity laws this evening. <laughs> we have a new topic. Tonight we will be dealing with the topic of love. The concept of love is among the most significant on the planet. Just think about the countless songs and ballads that have been sung about love. Consider the many storylines and poems which have been written around expressions of love. 
Consider the movies which have tugged at our hearts with wondrous portrayals of love, the famous tear-jerker double Kleenex dramas which leave us blubbering in the embrace of spouse and family members. <laughs> at our house, there is a disagreement about whether the more potent performance of Tom Hanks is presented in Sleepless or You've Got Mail. <laughs> Nevertheless, we all agree nothing tops the eye-swelling, nose-running production of It's a Wonderful Life, climaxing with George Bailey's cry, I want to live, and the rediscovery of Zuzu's petals. Love is a primordial aspect of our being. I've been told that studies have demonstrated that even if physical necessities such as feeding and cleaning and so forth are provided for an infant, a human child will die without appropriate expressions of love. We need love. We need to be loved. We need to know that we are loved. Love is a source of acceptance, security, assurance, and sustenance for the human creature. In our fallen world, characterized by judgments and separation, rejection, broken promises, and neglect, we're desperate for a foundation of love. As Christians, we find such grounding in the love of God. Yet even in the midst of pursuing righteousness, we don't always feel God's love. Perhaps it's because we have a more stoic personality, or due to feelings of guilt over some sin, or due to painful circumstances which make God seem distant or some other dilemma. In any case, even as Christians, we often need reminders of the strength of God's love. One place we can turn for such a reminder is to the words of the prophet Hosea. Listen to the words of the prophet from Hosea chapter 11. I'm reading from the New American Standard. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. Out of Egypt I called my son. The more I called him, the more he went from me. He kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim how to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love. I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws. I bent down and fed them. They will not return to the land of Egypt. Assyria, he will be their king because they refuse to return to me. The sword will whirl against their cities and demolish their gate bars and consume them because of their counsels. So my people are bent on turning from me. Though they call to the one on high, none at all exalts him. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again, for I am God and not man. I am the Holy One in your midst, 
I will not come in wrath. They will walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion, indeed he will roar, and his sons will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will settle them in their houses, declares the Lord. The historical circumstance reflected in this passage is that of Israel's crisis in the 8th century B.C. The mighty army of Assyria was threatening to devastate the land. God's people sought refuge in a variety of ways. Some fled to Egypt for safety as military leaders negotiated an alliance with Egypt to fight against Assyria. Others turned to the worship of the Baals, false gods of the land of Canaan. As God's people placed their trust in these other sources, God calmly, yet with heartfelt emotion, reminded them of how their life began. Once more, let me read those opening verses of Hosea 11. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. Out of Egypt I called my son. The more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms. They didn't know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love. I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws. Some translations read here, as one who lifts an infant to their cheeks, I bent down and fed them. When the nation of Israel was still young and dependent, God had called his children out of Egypt. He taught them to walk. He held them in his arms. He healed them. He lifted them as a baby to his cheeks. He bent down and fed them. The reminder of intimacy and love from God is unmistakable in the text. Israel's dependence upon God is pictured like that of a young child. Of all the infants in the animal kingdom, the most helpless and dependent of all is the human creature. The human baby can't walk, can't talk, can't feed itself, carries no survival instincts. Basically all the human infant can do is eat, sleep, cry, and mess a diaper. Amen. It's during this state of helplessness and seeming worthlessness that Almighty God initiates and sustains the life of His children with abundant love. Before he considers what they might do, who they might become, and how they might respond to him, God acts to love and care for his creatures. In these first four verses, God's love for his child Israel is described with the images of a caring parent. These images easily evoke memories of our own intimate experiences with our children. You've seen it, you've done it. If you're a parent, if you've watched parents, we all do the same thing. With our children, there's those moments where we teach them how to walk 
You know, we hold their arms up over their head and we sort of lean them forward a little bit until that foot drags across the carpet and then we shout to the world, he walked, he walked, did you see that? <laughs> and we do the same thing when we feed them. You remember when you try to get the food into their mouth? We have the same kinds of little tricks we play. You remember the choo-choo? Trying to get the food into their mouth to open up. And the ever-famous airplane? I remember as a child uh, when I would have a fever all night long. I was sick. Every time I would wake up, there was my father sitting next to my bedside with a cool rag that he would hold on my forehead and a drink that he would have me sip to keep me filled with liquids. I don't remember any time during the night when he wasn't there. Images of a loving, caring parent. This is the kind of love we all share as God's creatures. The fact that we were created the very fact that we continue to breathe is an initial statement of God's desire for our existence. The psalmist reminds us of God's involvement in our lives from the very beginning. Psalm 139. For you did form my inward parts. You weaved me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are thy works and my soul knows it very well. It's not simply our existence which God desires. His love seeks our prosperity in relationship to Him. Again, the psalmist reminds us of God's gracious dealings with humanity. Psalm 8, When I consider thy heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man? that you were thoughtful of him, the son of man, that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the pass of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Just consider the countless blessings which God has placed in your life. Consider the remaining places of glory unspoiled by human pollution which speak to God's creative gifts for all his children. Whether seen in a snow-capped mountain, a golden field of wheat, a crystal clear lake, acres of robust prairie, or a colorful painted desert, each is a testimony of God's love for humans to whom he has granted all these wonders. But the greatest demonstration of God's love for humanity is evident in his death on the cross in order to grant us salvation and an eternal relationship with God. We recite this truth from childhood in the church. Say it with me again. Recite what we all know from John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, 
but have everlasting life. This everlasting life in relationship to God, initiated and sustained by God's love, requires God's presence and the acceptance of God in one's life. This is illustrated within the next three verses of Hosea 11, which communicate that life is endangered without God. Verses 5 through 7 once again. They will not return to the land of Egypt. Assyria will be their king. Because they refuse to return to me, the sword will whirl against their cities and demolish their gate bars and consume them because of their counsels. So my people are bent on turning from me. Though they call to the one on high, none at all exalts him. The message from God's prophets to his people often focused on instruction to put their trust and recognize their security in the Lord God. God calls his people to right relationships with both God and neighbor. His people were to become a kingdom of priests, a holy nation whose purpose was to bless and minister to all the families of the earth. The business of God's people centered around a covenant of obedience in which God promised divine protection and provision in the face of any need or threat. The testimony of the sacred history reminds Israel that God was the one who fought their battles for them. In fact, the nation is warned against saying in its heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. The text pro proclaims it is God who provided the nation with prosperity. Thus the absence or rejection of God can only lead to endangerment of life. Without God, any battle against the infamous war hosts of Egypt or Assyria or Babylon was hopeless. Despite such assurance, when Israel was threatened, security was sought through military schemes and rebellions, seeking refuge in foreign lands, alliances with powers such as Egypt, promises of tribute to threatening empires such as Assyria, and ironically, security was sought through appeals to other alleged deities such as the Baals. As a result, without God in their midst. The sword began to whirl against their cities, their gate bars were demolished, and the people of God were on the verge of being consumed. The message to ancient Israel communicates an important truth for all of us. The absence or rejection of God endangers the fulfillment of life. The stresses of time and finance, demands of work, the needs of family, the pain of loss and brokenness, death, divorce, failure, sin, depression, fear, sickness, all of these and so much more drive us to find sources of security and means of victory. We might lean on selfish schemes which misuse our gifts of intellect and skill and talent. We may seek refuge in temporary places of shelter, such as drugs or alcohol or our own webs of deceit. We may form alliances which compromise our values. We may appeal to false deities, 
such as money or power or pride. In any case, the message from the prophet warns us that without God, all our attempts will ultimately lead to destruction. In light of the human tendency to turn away from God and seek our own means of security, how is God to respond? He may walk away and give people over to their own destruction. God might react with violence and wrath, raining down fire or stirring up earthquakes in order to annihilate such apostasy. Instruction from God's law lends some direction in relation to this question. At the beginning of this passage in Hosea 11, Israel is described as a disobedient son, sacrificing to the Baals and serving incense to idols. The law in Deuteronomy 21 states that when a mother and a father have a stubborn and rebellious son, they should take that child to the elders of the city and the child should be stoned to death. Thus it seems fitting that the prophet implies God's response will be one of anger with a sword whirling against the cities of Israel. Yet, God seems to express the pain of a parent who suffers over having to punish a beloved child. It's the old, hurts me more than it does you routine. But seriously, the anguish of a father who feels that he must go so far as to forsake his child who has broken faith is dramatically displayed in the film Fiddler on the Roof. I was immediately drawn to the character of Tevye, a father of daughters. As each of his first three daughters fall in love, he experiences a sense of compromise with tradition and faith. The oldest daughter falls in love with a good, hard-working Jewish boy. However, her parents had already arranged for her to marry an older, wealthy man in the community. In a critical scene, which is repeated as each daughter asks for father's permission and blessing, Everything in the background freezes as Tevia contemplates his decision. On the one hand, a daughter should follow tradition and marry according to the arrangements of the parents and the matchmaker. On the other hand, isn't a daughter entitled to happiness and to marry the one whom she loves? Tevia gives in and grants his permission and blessing to the first daughter. The second daughter presents more of a dilemma. She falls in love with a radical Jew with wild ideas of reform who does not even ask for the father's permission but only seeks his blessing. Again, the background freezes in the scene as Tevia contemplates, on the one hand, they're not asking permission. On the other hand, she loves him. Of course, he talks himself into granting permission and blessing. The third daughter presents the most dramatic request of all. She falls in love with a Gentile outside the faith. 
For the third time, the background scene freezes as Tevye struggles with the pros and cons of whether to sanction such a union. He goes through a short series of reasonings. On the one hand, can I deny everything I believe in? On the other hand, can I deny my own daughter? How can I turn my back on my faith? On the other hand, however, this time the compromise is too great and Tevye's heart hardens and breaks all at the same moment as he cries out, there is no other hand. And he waves his daughter away, knowing that the rejection of her apostasy means the banishment of his little girl. How can a father survive the rebellion of his children? More than Tevye, the God of Israel is confronted with a child who has broken faith. The message of Hosea proclaims God's own agonizing response to wayward children. Though his children deserve the sword, God's mercy overwhelms his anger. In verses 8 through 11 of Hosea chapter 11, the passion which God experiences for his creatures is fully revealed. In verse 8, the pronouns shift from third person to second person. Thus, God no longer refers to his people as him or they or them, but rather God intimately cries out, how can I give you up? How can I surrender you? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. The words of the Lord seem to reflect emotional turmoil over what to do with this stubborn and rebellious child. The words of the prophet on behalf of the Lord express God's anger over the sin of his wayward children, yet God's love for these creatures restrains God from executing the capital punishment decreed by his own law that a stubborn and rebellious child should be stoned to death. Instead, overwhelming compassion bursts forth with a commitment to restoration and reconciliation. Verse 9, I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. I am God and not man. The passage finishes in verses 10 and 11 with God's promise that his children will walk after the Lord and God will settle them in their homes. The anguish which God expresses over his children, prompted by the tension between wrath against sin and overwhelming love for humanity, is ultimately revealed in the mystery of the cross. Instead of the death of a stubborn and rebellious son, in itself a torment too great for God to bear, incredibly God endures the death of an obedient and righteous son. 
The sacrifice of self on behalf of others, suffering the innocent on behalf of the guilty. No greater love has any God than this, that God lay down his life on behalf of his creatures. Amen. The mystery of the cross expresses the very message which Hosea has preached to Israel. God's love and compassion overwhelm any wrath and redeem any human defiled by sin. No matter what we've done, where we've been, or what we have thought, God has broken his own body and shed his own blood in order to restore his children. He is committed to keeping us walking after him. And he will establish us secure in his kingdom. Life is endangered by rejecting God. But it is restored and sustained through the acceptance of God in our lives. If there is anything which hinders your walking after God, anything which interferes with your full fellowship with the risen Christ our Lord, I urge you to surrender to his overwhelming love. Renew your relationship. Revive your adoption as God's child. He has certainly revealed his desire to forgive and to pour out upon you his overwhelming love. I was expecting you to do this. <laughs> now, may the peace of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and the grace and warmth of each other's presence be with us all. Amen.